Hello dear peeps, I just finished editing the new brand new episode with Siri and honestly speaking in between doing it I was screaming out loud out of joy and just fascination how brilliant this woman her work and this whole talk is about so it's really an episode that I can dearly can recommend you um, not only is Siri a fantastic community a communicator, brilliant researcher, brilliant expert in diversity, inclusion, and more, but she has so much passion and joy just to translate all her insights and knowledge. And we spoke about so many different things, how you can advance your career, how cognitive bias is important if it comes to recruitment, your work and your personal life, no matter if you're in a position of HR or the ones who are coming to a job interview. So many different ways of how we can create a more just, more equal, Equal, more flourishing society and much more so what else can I say then simply enjoy it's going to be worth it welcome to the I am enough podcast I'm your host Alisa Eracina and I invite you on a journey of remembering who we really are human perfectly imperfect powerful and always interconnected. One earth, one humanity, and one love. You are enough. Always were, and always will be. So shall we play? And we are live. Welcome everyone to uh, this beautiful episode with Siri. And um, as always, I'm giving a just small introduction of how I meets uh, these powerful leaders and I met Siri at the Vienna conference. Um, it was 2019, I think, if I'm not mistaken, about female leadership. And um, she had, or she is an expert in academia for topics of gender equality, diversity and inclusion. So she was invited on stage. And honestly, from the bottom of my heart, I, um, really love the way how you present it because generally people from academia and I've been at my university myself and it's not about stereotyping it's just the way how equipped people are with their communication skills it's a very frontal very fact-driven very um um yeah dry dry way of presenting but you demonstrated so much passion and I love the way how you um how you presented uh, different media in order to really get your point across and uh, translate your research into practicality, so to say. And you actually reminded me of one of my role models. Um, he's called Dan Arely. I'm not sure if you know him. Yes. A, yeah, yes, exactly. So I saw him like a couple of years ago. He's a, a professor for psychology and behavioral economics. And I love the way how he's bringing science into translation. And for me, when I was, saw you, you were because I was asking myself, where women who can do this this way and when i saw you i was like wow so that's definitely somebody who is uh, kicking ass and translating important insights of research into everyday life so i'm super excited to have you here thank you for being here on the show uh, coming from boston and i will start off opening the floor of uh, giving you the space to introduce who you are and um with a question of what is your bullshit story of not being enough that you told yourself or maybe even tell yourself right now? Welcome to the show, Siri. 
Alisa, thank you so much for having me. That's probably the nicest introduction I've ever gotten. So thank you. Thank you for that. Um, that was a fabulous conference and I love Vienna. I've had a chance to visit a couple of times in the last few years. So I, I can't wait to come back when this is all over and we can, we can get to traveling again. So like you said, I am a behavioral scientist and maybe that's where that whole orientation to understanding how we best process information comes from because we study human brains and human behavior and what, in my case, what impact that has on diversity and inclusion in organizations and how we can use all of the understanding about how human brains naturally work to actually design organizations and, and schools and workplaces that are better conducive to more diversity, more inclusiveness, more feelings of belonging for people. And in, in my case, it's specifically with a lens toward gender equality. So now as for my BS story, let me take you back to my first job um, after university. So I was 22 years old. I started working in a large multinational management consulting firm, which honestly was an excellent job. And it was amazing first job because I learned so many important things for life, not just for work in that first job. But I think the one big misconception that I came in with was that just putting your head down and doing your best work was going to be enough to get noticed, to get treated fairly, um, to you know advance as, as quickly as you should advance. And I really did have this idea, which I think a lot of people have, that the workplace is meritocratic, that the best of the best rise to the top because of their talents and because they deserve it. And as long as you do your work honorably and well, that's all that it takes. And and I had the benefit of some wonderful mentors in that firm and older, more experienced people who took an interest in me um, and kind of my development who very quickly said, kind of, you know, taught me that lesson and said, no, 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 you, you have to be excellent at what you do and you have to do your work well, but you have to be asking for things like promotions and projects and high visibility opportunities. And even as the most junior person in the entire organization, you should already be reaching out to some of the more senior people to schedule, you know, one-on-one -on -one meetings and put yourself on their calendar and start to build a profile and a reputation. And I have to say at first that was overwhelming. I was like, this is not what I signed up for. I'm already very busy doing 60 hour weeks working on these client assignments like this is too much I don't want to deal with the politics but that was one of those lessons that hard lessons that I just had to learn and I do have to say that it's been I think incredibly valuable to have learned it so early in my career um, because it connects directly to some of the work that I do now which is it, explaining to people that and having them recognize and showing to them through, through research and data that we have available that our organizations are not meritocratic. They don't naturally treat everyone the same. People rise to the top for various different reasons and a lot of it has to do with who got the opportunity early on, you know, to get a high profile assignment or to, or to be paired up with the right senior person to work with. And sometimes that has nothing to do with capability or ability. So that's my that's my little story to kick off mm. thanks for giving giving um insight into that and uh, maybe some of you who are listening until that can resonate a bit so you if you work in a corporate field um or uh, in in the business field you very fast recognize that it's as you said not enough to have good grades or to be uh, good at your work but it's much more about demonstrating this courage um or or asking for that um what can you recommend 
young women or generally women when they start off because um and that would be first part of the question second of all like is this something which is um culturally shaped is this something which is biologically shaped that mm -hmm. women feel more natural um of uh, um maybe not asking not pushing so much or how where where do you where can you put this mm. no that's a super good question actually i'm gonna start with the second part first we're never, I don't think we'll ever be able to fully figure out that debate between nature and nurture, you know, what part is fully innate and genetic and what exactly what part is the environment. What I will tell you is studies show that boys and girls as young as four, five and six years old start to internalize society stereotypes about women and men and about the proper roles of women and men in society. So even if we don't know the exact breakdown between nature and nurture, we do know that nurture, right? And what we're exposed to, the culture we live in, what we see when we grow up around us, that has a huge part in shaping our behavior and our aspirations for ourselves. So um, women and girls are told from a very young age, you know, nurture others, be warm, be caring, don't take up too much space, give other people a chance. I was always very active in elementary school. I was always raising my hand. I was always excited to have the answer. And the only message I got the whole time was, Siri, don't be so eager, give other people a chance to talk. And of course, that message in part is very important because you don't want to just, you know, dominate. Uh, you, you need to be, be, um, attuned to other people's needs as well. But boys don't get that message so often. When boys are raising their hand and answering the questions, it's, oh, brilliant, great job, keep going. So, so sadly, in most cultures around the world, the way we raise girls and boys and, and the messaging that they get all throughout their early formative years is quite different. So now going back then to the first part of your questions, which is what should young women starting in organizations, kind of what, what's my advice to them? And this advice, I say, recognizing that it's not women's job to fix the structural inequalities that are holding them back and putting hurdles in their way, right? They're just going out there. They're doing the best job that they can. They're on an uneven playing field. They're kind of being unfairly disadvantaged. But for me, the biggest takeaway um, and a really transformative takeaway in that first job was to recognize that I was in the driver's seat of my career and that nobody cared about my life and about my happiness and about my professional development as much as I did. You know, you might have supportive colleagues, coworkers, mentors, senior people, and you might even work for an amazing company and, or an organization that's really supportive. But at the end of the day, all of those people still have other priorities. The organization's first priority is to take care of the organization as a whole. You know, your mentor's first priority is to take care of themselves and their family and their kids and whatever else is going on. So as kind of harsh as it sounds to say is no one cares about you as much as you do. And so that would be my advice is, is it changed my perspective because it stopped making me rely on other people. Um, and I no longer had the impulse or instinct to sit around and wait for things to happen. Because instead I said, wait, probably if I'm waiting for someone else to make it happen for me, I'm going to be waiting for a long time because it's not on the top of their priority list. So if I want it to happen, I need to make it happen. And uh, so that means, you know, you being the driver, asking, seeking out opportunities, uh, asking, asking, asking until you get what you want. 
Mm. Yeah, thank you so much. I love that. Like taking full ownership of your experience for life. Exactly, and yeah. sometimes it's easier said than done. Like, I don't know how is it for others, but for me, even though I understand this cognitively, even though I li literally want to live by it, there are still moments where I feel like I'm delegating this responsibility yeah. to society, to others, to your partner, etc. So there's kind of this mechanism that still hopes uh, others will fix our problems or issues for us. Um, totally. I was wondering when you're saying, um, and, and I agree, like what you said, like if you look into, into organizations or companies, um, your happiness, your well-being is not the number one priority and goal. However, and maybe I'm very utopical and naive in that, but um, that was my first confrontation when I started working in different companies that I saw, this is not like this. And for me, it never really made sense because for my, for my, feeling and understanding i thought people are exchanging their lifetime to um to um and and organizations profit from that so somehow there is this um, collective responsibility that you thrive not only survive um is this possible or is this not going to 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 be is this not an aim that we're looking for like to to bring this responsibility also to the top that we do care how you develop in your career. We do care how you feel, how you, how you feel emotionally, physically, and how you thrive as a human being. Yeah, I, I, I couldn't agree with you more, by the way, everything that you just said. And I really think it should be. And this is a bit of a difference um, too between Europe and the United States, as far as I'm aware, is our corporate culture is, is quite frankly much more bottom line driven. And there is not this institutionalized sense that you don't only need to care about the shareholders benefit, right? The people who get the money at the end of the day, but you also have to be looking out for your employers, your customers, your suppliers, your vendors, the environment, like all these other entities that are around and linked to your business. I think in Europe, there's a little bit more of that ethos. I 100% think that we should be caring about people and, and not just our employees, right? Also our customers, for example, um, as whole individuals, you know, and making sure that they are happy, fulfilled, have opportunities to grow, have opportunities both to strengthen their strengths and build on the things that they already do really well and allow them to shine in those areas, but also allow them an opportunity to work on their weaknesses and kind of shoring up some of the areas that they're not so strong at, whether that's work-related or, or if it's maybe even personal life-related. I think the next question you're going to ask me is, is there an example of an organization that's doing this? Because <laughs> I get asked that a lot. Um, and I can't think of one. Uh, that's not to say that they don't exist, but I don't think I've come across an organization that has holistically embraced that kind of philosophy about organizational life. And that's kind of the revolution that needs to happen in the world of work, honestly. Uh, a lot of things need to change about how society is organized and how we go about living our lives. But as far as workplaces go, I think that's one of the things that really does need to change is fundamentally the way we manage people and the way we view their roles in organizations. They're not just robots who come in at nine, leave at five, and you can just tell them to do whatever and they'll get it done. Um, that, that's not humanity. Mm. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for, for saying this. And I would even add one more stakeholder to this whole formula, which is Earth or the resources of the planet, however, what yes. term you want to put in it. But I think that's also kind of um, ethical dilemma that we're 
putting profit over planet somehow. And um, I mean, it's not surprised that we're the whole climate crisis um, where we are at because there are simply different priorities in the um, corporate market. And I deeply wish to change. So if you had the chance to build these organizations or like to be part of this and you are already part of this revolution what do we need what are the building stones for this workplace revolution what do we need where when where can we start of changing that yeah well that's always um that's such a great question sometimes people ask me this in a you know slightly different way which is if you got to build the perfect organization from scratch instead of trying to fix one that already exists that's broken in many ways what would you do differently so i i think that's a variation of the question that you just asked um being broadly inclusive of people that means women and men it means people of all different colors ethnicities cultural and national backgrounds it means people of different abilities um, another a fellow speaker at the conference where you and i elisa met is someone from denmark who promotes inclusion of neurodiverse people uh, and people on the autism spectrum who can add incredible value to the workplace and they bring skills and talents that the rest of us just don't have but because they're not quote unquote normal or typical they often get sidelined uh, from opportunities to actually add value and contribute so when i say diversity i really do mean it you know in the very broadest sense but when you start out with diversity in your organization. And this is what I would do is if I was building um, you know, a company from scratch is instead of hiring all my friends who I already know and love and who think exactly the same way as me and we agree on everything, we'd have a grand old time. We'd have the best time working together, but we wouldn't build the best kind of organization and we wouldn't discover the best solutions to hard problems precisely because we're so similar and we already think alike. Working with diverse people, people who are different from you, who have different experiences and different perspectives is hard. It's challenging because there's going to be more conflict and more debate, but that is exactly where the magic of diversity really comes from. Um, because when we debate, we, when we consider facts more deeply, when we ask more questions, when we pursue more alternative perspectives before making a final decision, it turns out that we actually just generate better outcomes as humans. So, so I would say that's the first part is uh, we need to diversify along all different kinds of metrics and bring more people together into organizations to be able to contribute their talents and their lived experiences. And then the second part of that, the flip side of that coin is the inclusiveness or the inclusion part, is how do we actually, once we've brought all these people into the room, make them feel like their contributions are genuinely valued and that we want to hear what they have to say even when it's different from what we're used to hearing, and even when it challenges the prevailing perspective, um, even when it takes a little bit longer to understand what they're saying, right? Instead of just the fast, 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 let's get it done. Um, and I, I can tell you, I, you know, I experience those challenges every day because I can viscerally feel how much more comfortable I am working with people who just think like me. Mm. Um, but I know my, my, the intellectual part of my brain knows that it's better uh, to work with people who actually have different perspectives. But I really do think 
those two pieces, diversity and inclusion and inclusiveness, are key to building organizations that can be successful in the long term and that can serve the interests, the holistic interests like we talked about, of all the different stakeholders, including the planet. Mm, fantastic. Uh, follow up on that. Um, I know you're doing a lot of work also working actively with organizations, helping them to, to implement this. Um, what could be like to, to bring this more from an abstract level to a more practical yeah. level? Like what would be one thing, especially if somebody's listening and managing a team or managing a company, or you're just part of a company where you want to bring more diversity inclusion there, how can you, um, the first part you said, um, establish a more um, culture where conflicts are celebrated rather than being avoided and how to give this intentional space for others to be heard and to to um to hear their perspective somehow yeah yeah culture change is really hard i sometimes say it's like eating an elephant, the prospect of eating the whole elephant at once seems completely overwhelming. You're like, I can never get through this. But if we break it down, you know, into bite-sized chunks, then if you just eat one bite at a time and don't think too much about how much longer you have to go, eventually you will have eaten that elephant. And I think one of those bite-sized chunks that we can easily tackle today is um, our social norms. Social norms are part of culture. They're kind of the shared but often unspoken understandings of what type of behavior is good or bad in a given situation. What kinds of behaviors are encouraged and acceptable and what is unacceptable. And I think all of us as individuals, but especially leaders, because they're at the top of the hierarchy and we're kind of looking up to them, have a lot of power to shape uh, and change these social norms in an organization. So I'll give you an example. If you're a leader and you're in a meeting, virtual or physical, it doesn't matter. And you want to start shifting the culture toward more debate, the more debates and more open exchange of ideas. When someone has said something, you can interject and say, I love this. Who has a different perspective? Let's hear two reasons why this idea might not be a good idea. I, I, I don't want us to move forward before we've considered this from all sides. And then when someone bravely steps up to offer that contrarian perspective, you as the leader or just as a coworker can step in to reinforce that and say, yes, I love that you brought that up because you are really pushing us to think through this more deeply and carefully before we make a final decision. And those types of very small actions, you know, that one sentence that I just said, over time, a couple of weeks, months, we're not talking forever here, is going to change people's understanding of what types of behaviors are acceptable. And it's going to make it more acceptable to raise contrarian points of view, to raise objections, to challenge each other, um, to make sure that we've looked at an issue from all sides before we lock in to one solution. I love that. Thanks for sharing that. I think that's very, yeah, that is very practical. And it's, it's, it's just interesting how something seemingly so small can actually uh, not just into a different behavior or a different um, social norm um, totally. over time. And it starts just with a simple, hey, I love that. What's another perspective on that? Or what's the challenge here? Um, yeah. Now we're speaking about social norms. Um, I would love to, to know your opinion on one uh, female-related um, um, topic in the workplace and it's the female cycle so just to give a brief introduction like I'm also working with um, um, 
in this topic, how to integrate it more into workplace. And I have a strong vision and I don't know the answers. That's the thing. Like we, maybe we all don't know the answers, how to make the shift possible, but, um, women and men work also biologically different this is no big surprise um, um, and we have a different rhythm so obviously there are going to be more times where our brain is um, or our just physique functioning a bit differently um, we never have ever considered this in our workforce that women have a cycle and i'm not in only talking about the monthly cycle i'm talking about the whole female life cycle so the menopause also um uh, giving birth to a child um, i mean there are some obvious differences like um how much maternity leave you give from county to county i think this is something very visible but there are so many different aspects of this whole topic um, is this something we should strive for, can strive for? Do you have any thoughts on that? How can we make it a more inclusive workplace also for women? Or is this something not on the radar of uh, companies and people and research at all? It's really interesting you bring this up because I think the aspect of this that's very much on the radar of researchers and companies is the maternity aspect, the childbearing and child rearing aspect of this, both for women and men, because as you say, there's so much, there's so many differences between how countries tackle the issue. Um, and then even within a country or within an organization, there tends to be a very different approach for women and men, you know? Yes, yes. So a mom might get a year of maternity leave um, and a dad who has also a large life disruption when that baby comes into their life, you know, might get two weeks. And so that's something that we're, I think is actively being talked about. The more broader aspects of, like you said, the life flow over time, menopause, monthly cycles, that's actually new. I would love to hear more about your vision because this is a totally new topic for me. Mm. Yeah. So, um, it's interesting to see, like I picked up this topic just a um, couple of years ago and so doing with my work and I never ever considered that because this is also one of the norms that we're uh, learned about. Like you just know you're having your monthly flow and this is what's it and nobody talks about it. And because it's not usually a topic that you would discuss on your family table and not at all in the workplace, it somehow uh, gets under the table. And if you look at numbers so in terms of how many women actually struggle with PMS and really period pain monthly basis, which hinders their productivity, hinders their um, um, effectiveness in work. I just wonder if there is a different way of doing it. And I have heard some couple of examples where um, companies give, for example, one day free paid uh, um, option for one day off throughout the month, just as a benefit um, because they honor women's um, rhythms without any things but i'm not sure if this is the only way and of mm. course there are other companies that give um in in, in austria is striving for um, for that and um, to give um sustainable products in companies um so menstrual hygiene products so these yeah. are all small pieces but for me it's never really addressing the 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 core issue that our workplace is not because it's an evil plan but by default male-centered and not women-centered mm -hmm. so my question is like how can we create a more female-centered or women-centered um, places as well um, yes. and it's not an either or question but there are also like some studies which show that women function way better uh, with uh, higher um, uh, excuse me i think lower temperature versus men and higher temperature so you can see how also the physical works as we said nurture and yeah. nature physical design matters in terms of how productive you are as a woman leader or as a, a workplace agent 
Yeah. No, I think you're bringing up such an important point. Actually, um, there's a whole book written about this. I forget the exact title now, of course, but um, about how the world in many ways was designed from the get-go for men. So mm -hmm. things like the human dummies in crash tests for cars all around the world before a car can get to the market it has to go through extensive safety testing and as part of that safety testing they crash the cars to make sure that if humans are inside you know that there's minimal damage all those dummies that they put in the cars in the crash tests they are representative of the male body they have the average height and weight of the male body as opposed to the female body. Um, and they've actually now been able to show that that results in more danger for women in cars uh, because the safety features were designed for men instead of for women. And that's just one small example. And your examples are excellent too, to the same point. And so what, you know, we have a lot of work ahead of us because we have to go back and revisit. We have to not just build more for the future in a more inclusive way, but we have to go back and re-examine all the structures that are already in place today um, to scan for bias, to scan for male centricity um, instead of, you know, inclusiveness or female centricity. Yeah. Mm. Yes, I agree. Sounds like a very um, uh, ambitious task. <laughs> Let's yeah. put it like this. Um, I love what you put also in your description when you describe yourself that you're, um, let me see, research translator. Uh, yeah. One of the biggest issues that I, from my point of view, perceive is that we have a lot of, of course, there's always more, but we have a lot of studies, a lot of good uh, academic insights, and yet we're not managing to put them into practice. How do you think we can close the gap between um, research or academic profound insights and yeah. uh, direct application in the workplace, in, in society, in uh, economics. Yeah, this is my big, big passion in life. It really is. Because while I'm an academic, I want to change the world. I want to see the world changing for the better. Um, and it's not enough for us as researchers just to do fabulously well-constructed studies and to generate really interesting insights and then to publish them in journals that no one ever reads. Sometimes not even our own colleagues manage to get through all the journals, right? Because now that, that knowledge is not being put to work. It's just sitting there on a dusty shelf. And so I'm, I'm super passionate about this translation piece and making sure that across all fields, in my case, it's you know social science, organizational behavior, behavioral science, but it could be in the medical field, it can be the scientific field, this idea that we make sure that the insights and the new knowledge that's being generated gets into the hands of people anywhere in the world out there who can use that knowledge to make a difference. And I have to say, I, I put quite a bit of um, responsibility here on the shoulders of our, us in academia. We've traditionally not done a good job of communicating our research to the world. And that hasn't been how the incentive structure in academia is set up. I'm very lucky that I work at an amazing institution, which is the Harvard Kennedy School, that explicitly has three parts to its mission. So of course, one part of our mission is to generate knowledge. That's to do the research. The second part is to train future leaders. That's all the teaching that we do, and that's the students that we have. But the third explicit part of our mission, which most academic institutions wouldn't have, is to influence practice. Um, and so at my institution, it's very much built into how we do our work, and it's very much encouraged. But that's 
the revolution that I would hope to see in academia is that we would start to value equally the communication of research insights and not just the production of insights. But I'll also say there's the other side of the coin, which is on the practitioner side. I interact a lot with um, HR professionals, human resources professionals, and diversity and inclusion professionals, uh, and they're doing amazing work, but they're also not incentivized usually as part of their core job to learn. There's no time built in for them to educate themselves, to learn, to upskill themselves on the latest, you know, research, the latest knowledge, what's going on, what are people doing, what are the best, newest approaches. It's more just the day to day, just get through today, get those people hired, get them on board and do the annual salary review. And so, you know, there's the, um, the other side too, where I think organizations should um, carve out a little bit more time for more thoughtful learning on an ongoing basis. Thank you for this. Um, first of all, thank you for the beautiful uh, passion and your, your drive to make this possible. <laughs> I really can feel it. And I can recommend anyone who wants to invite this beautiful, powerful leader, like check out the descriptions Ooh. below how to get it. Because I know, like I, I literally told you, and I mean this, that you are doing a wonderful job of making this translation happen and you putting it into words and practicals that, that make sense, that you can take and implement it right away and don't only fantasize or get lost in the words. And uh, the other practical, um, so putting the, the weight also on the practitioners, I think it's also very important that one thing that popped up in my mind, um, like this expansion and growth, creating the intention space for this is so important. There's one company that I came across, um, it's called Mind Valley. They actually dedicate, I think, five hours per week for employees where it's, you get paid to learn. You get paid to learn. Wow. So whatever it is. And then in their monthly uh, meetings with everyone, um, some are going to be chosen to present some stuff. So it's a small, simple thing, but it's just changing a bit this idea or culture of that it's not about managing or um, being here with a fire distinguisher, like on your daily activities, but yeah. really moving forward, understanding what's, how can you expand as individual, but also as organization. So very, yeah. very powerful thought. I you love said, that example. Yes. Um, you said something um, before in terms of cognitive biases and, and I know that's kind of your passion and, uh, too. <laughs> You're already shaking. I, I have a lot of passions. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Fantastic. What would you say is maybe top one insights that we as humans are not aware of that can literally change our life if we understand that there is this bias and how can we um, look out for this bias in our everyday life and work? Yeah, that's the most beautiful question anyone has ever asked me. I love that. Here's the top one insight. Ready? I'm ready. Our minds are biased, but so are our systems, our processes, and our environments. And while our individual brains are incredibly difficult or perhaps impossible to debias, according to the latest research that we have, there's not really evidence that we can rewire the human brain because unconscious bias is just a facet or a fact of how our brains work. While it's very difficult to rewire these individual brains, it's actually quite easy to change the systems, processes, structures, environment that also have bias baked into them. And this is such a critical insight because today still, most of the work around bias and our, our typical methods for tackling unconscious bias are sending people to diversity trainings, to unconscious bias trainings, to having them read articles, having them read books about it. 
And what those things do is they raise our awareness. We learn things about bias. We're like, oh, wow, I never knew that was a thing. And wow, wow, wow. That's important. That's useful. We feel like we learned something. Evidence shows that there's basically zero effect on behavior. Awareness alone isn't enough to change behavior. But instead, if I just put you in a different environment or I change the process on you, let's take an example from hiring. A lot of companies, most companies, do interviews as part of their hiring process. And oftentimes, every single interviewer asks the candidates different questions, their own questions. They take the resume, oh, Lisa, nice to meet you. Uh, Tell me a little bit about yourself. Well, those types of unstructured interview conversations are truly a breeding ground for bias because you're bound to like more, like people who are more similar to you. Um, Oftentimes we're clouded by first impressions. That's called the halo effect. So within the first minute you do something that really impresses me, uh, you know, I'm going to say, oh, Elise is amazing. And whatever she said after that, I'm going to fit that data to the existing narrative of Elisa is awesome. Another cognitive bias that we have is that we simply remember the things that happened more recently better than we remember things that happened way long ago. So if I have a one hour long interview with you and you say amazing stuff at the end and pretty mediocre stuff in the beginning, after the interview is done, when I sit down to write my evaluation, I'm going to disproportionately remember the amazing stuff that you said right at the end. And I'm going to kind of overweight your performance on that interview overall. So I'm just giving you a couple of quick examples, but my point is unconscious biases pervade our um, information processing and our decision-making all the time. We tell all these uh, recruiters, all these interviewers, you know, we could educate them about all these biases and say, please, please be mindful next time you're sitting in an interview not to fall prey to these biases. But that wouldn't be a very effective strategy, again, because we can't really de-bias individual brains. Instead, what we could do, and this goes back to our insight of changing systems and processes is easier and better than trying to change minds, is we could just change the structure of the interview. We could say from now on, every interviewer has the same set of questions that they ask all candidates. Here's your set of questions that you need to get through in one hour. And you're going to be grading the candidates as you go along so that as they're answering question one, I'm evaluating their answer to question one. By the time we get to question seven, I just need to evaluate that. I've already written down my assessment of how well they did in questions one through six. And it turns out that that's a much more objective and much less biased way to conduct interviews and to assess candidates for hiring. We didn't try to change the human brain, we changed the process. Very interesting uh, insights uh, for both if you are applying for a job. Um, so to take this into consideration as well as your, when you're selecting um, your, your people for, for, yeah. for the organization. May I ask you, um, not a challenging question, but a, a deep dive into that. Yeah, of course. If I'm evaluating then the, the, the performance of the other person, um, how, like, isn't it also like my projections or my cognitive bias that are embedded in this process? And if so, like, is there any other things that we can do in order to reduce, reduce this um, distortion? Yeah, a hundred percent. You're hitting the nail on the head. Your own expectations, biases, life experience are going to color how you assess someone else's capability. And that's going to be true for every single one of us. One way to combat that is to choose your evaluation criteria in advance. 
and to be very specific about what you're looking for, um, but then also to be very specific about what good looks like. You know, so if you have five questions that you ask and you've got this whole army of interviewers who are going out to interview lots of candidates, for each of those questions, we should have it very clearly stated, what are we looking for the candidates to demonstrate in this answer? And how can they do that? If we're asking them about a time in the past, let's say, when they demonstrated leadership, well, what would be a good example? What would be a bad example? What are the characteristics of a good example of leadership and the characteristics of a bad example of leadership? In other words, we're trying to standardize and formalize the criteria as much as possible so that those individual level biases, like you were just saying, have less of an opportunity to influence the evaluation. Huh. Thank you so much. I really love how you, uh, how detailed you are and how, how much knowledge you have in, into this. And I think there's much value just to, to being aware of these things uh, in, in our corporate world and our economics. And I really deeply thank you for the work that you're doing and all oh, the insights thank you. that you're providing. It's super, super fascinating. And I'm sure it's not the last time, first of all, we're going to dive into these topics and, um, also following just your journey, you're bringing more and more out there um, to help organizations and people just, I wouldn't say combat biases, but to integrate the knowledge uh, in a, yeah. in a, in a um, meaningful way. Um, and I have one small question that would be super interesting for me. Um, and then I would uh, continue or end with our final, final question about death collections. Um, you, like uh, you said before, it's and I totally agree that it's way more difficult to um, minimize the um, programming of the mind. So I would put it in mm -hmm. this. In this yeah. yeah. Um, do you um, one field that super interests me is the uh, psychedelics um, and the application of psychedelics of in terms of rewiring the brain and that they have a lot of i mean we have seen it mostly in um, trauma um ptsd etc and the us is one of the leading uh, countries who might allow uh, or will probably um uh, allow um psychedelic assisted therapy because it has such a strong way of um reprogramming basically your mind um have you touched upon this topic at all is it something um that we can look at it in also in the corporate field or this is new land for, for this is brand new to me, but I love that you're bringing it to my attention. And I think it's a great example of how in a lot of fields, right? We're tackling large, um, un, you know, unprecedented problems on a global scale. We need unprecedented solutions. We need to get more creative and more out there with our solutions. And so I love that, you know, something like exploring psychedelics is being studied uh, for this because who knows what we might find. Um, but it's, it's new to me. I'll have to look into it. Beautiful. I love that you're so open and honest and like whatever I'm telling you, your eyes are shining for the ones who are watching. Like I just love your passion <laughs> and how much you demonstrate. And I love that you're um, open, like without rejecting, but saying like, oh, I don't know it. It's an interesting approach. Um, fantastic. So maybe in future we can exchange some, some things on that as well. Um, I honestly love this talk. They're brilliant insights. I'm looking forward to going for all the notes and putting the, the biggest gold nuggets here. I would love to finish off with a final question for you, Siri. 
um, that would be a sort of a reflection on death because it's just shows a bit more the juice and the, the essence of what your message is, what is it that you want to leave behind. Mm -hmm. So the question goes as follows, what would be the one and only message that you would like to leave behind to your beloved brothers and sisters or humanity if you would know that you had only one week to live? What would be one core message that you would like to leave behind? I would say love yourself because my experience has been that if you're really struggling with your relationship with yourself and you haven't found a way to accept yourself, it's really hard to project love and kindness and positivity and radiance to the world around you. Um, this was something that my, you know, my parents taught me at a very young age when you know, kids are being mean on the schoolyard and there's bullying in elementary school and things like that. Um, and our natural, excuse me, our natural tendency as humans is to make it about us and say, oh, they're teasing me about my hair and about my dress, like what's wrong with me? And my parents were so good about saying, it's not about you. They are projecting their own pain on you. You just happen to be there in the wrong place at the wrong time. You became the target, but there's nothing wrong with you. It's their pain that they're trying to process. And I just think if in the world, all of us had a little bit less of our own internal pain, if we learn to truly embrace ourselves, accept our strengths, accept our weaknesses, accept our faults, forgive ourselves for the little and the big things that we do wrong every day, then we would have more positivity and love to reflect and spread to other people. That's quite a mic drop at the end, I would say. So, wow, thank you so much. I deeply appreciate it. And um, that even surprised me that, I mean, it didn't surprise me because I know you're a person of a very cool and sharp mind and brain and oh, you have a very you. warm heart. Um, but uh, it's nice to hear that um, if this is your message that you're just wanting to bring more self-acceptance and love to people. Uh, and that interwinds beautifully into the theme of the podcast of that we are enough and it starts with feeling whole. Um, and wow, Siri, what can I say apart from thank you? It's so interesting thank to talk you. to you. I'm really, really grateful to have you here in the show. Um, hopefully it's not the last conversation. Um, and um, everyone who liked what this, uh, this thought leader, this leader, this beautiful researcher and expert has to say, um, check her out, book her as a speaking gig for now, it's online. But uh, maybe another time when you're, you're coming to Vienna frequently, right? I would, yes, I, I love, I'll take every opportunity to come to Vienna. <laughs> is there a special, I didn't ask you, like, is there a special connection to Vienna? Why you, why you? Not really, to... you know, the, the only special connection is I actually came for the first time two or three years ago. I hadn't visited before then, but throughout my life, I had always heard from people how beautiful Vienna is. And so it had been really a place on my mind where I was like, oh, I really have to go. And then when the opportunity finally presented itself, I was like, this is it. Now I finally get to go to Vienna. And I just, every time I've had such a lovely time there on my visits, I've met the most fabulous people like yourself. I'm starting to have a little sort of crew of people in Vienna now that whenever I go back, I email them in advance and say, oh, could we grab breakfast or could we grab dinner? And um, it's just, it's such an absolutely lovely city. Beautiful, fantastic. So you heard it, folks, if you're in Vienna and you want to, to get to know this lady, she's taking any opportunity to come here. So feel <laughs> free to invite her as a speaker, as a guest, as an expert. I think deeply you will value more than you initially think because there is a lot of um, 
a lot, a lot of what, what, what we have um, as a whole package. So Siri, thank you so much. Ple Alisa, really thank you. You're the best. I really have enjoyed our conversation. Thank you for having me. Thank you for inviting me to join you. This is wonderful. I really, really appreciate the work that you're doing. Thank you so much. And um, same, same goes to you. Like, I think we can fangirl each other here. Um, thank you, everyone who's listening. See you soon. Enjoy your beautiful day. And aloha.